0: I'm Amy Gastellum, Thanks for listening to Making Contact. We'll see you next week.
1: Community Radio is hiring a full-time development director. This position leads all fundraising campaigns in alignment with KBU's mission, goals, and policies. The development director works closely with management and staff to identify funding priorities and create major donor campaigns, capital campaigns, and grant writing. More info can be found at kbu.fm slash hiring. We will begin reviewing applications on August 7th and the position will remain open until filled. KBU is an equal opportunity employer. KBU has a mobile app. You can listen to all your favorite shows, subscribe to KBU Podcast, even set KBOO as your alarm clock. Just look for KBU on the iTunes and Google Play Store. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. KBOO
2: Oh, my God.
0: and welcome to Trans Positive. Tonight, we're going to be talking about current events related to trans people. Uh, let's go around and introduce ourselves real quick. I'm Nicolette, and I use they, them, a, m, and fey-fair pronouns.
3: I'm Jean, and I use she and her pronouns. I'm Emma, I use she her pronouns.
2: And I'm Sheila, and I use she and her pronouns.
3: Great.
0: So the first story I'd like to get into is the story of Emmett Brock. Um, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department is investigating the violent arrest of a trans man that took place in February this year. 23 year old trans man Emmett Brock was violently arrested and beaten by a police officer allegedly for having an air freshener in his car. Brock was driving home when he passed the officer acting abusive towards a woman on the road. So Brock gave the officer the middle finger as he drove by. The officer then got in his car and began following Brock, but did not turn his lights on or attempt to pull him over. Brock deviated from his route to confirm if the officer would continue to follow him, and he did. So Brock called 911, who told him that if the officer didn't have his lights on, then he wasn't trying to pull him over, so he should just continue to his destination. Brock then pulled into a 7-Eleven parking lot, which is when the officer pulled in behind him, turned his lights on, and stepped out of the car. Security camera footage from the 7-Eleven shows the officer telling Brock he pulled him over, to which Brock said, no, you didn't, and attempted to walk away and go inside the store. The officer then grabbed Brock, threw him to the ground, and began punching him while Brock cried for help. The officer arrested Brock and said it was for resisting arrest, though he wouldn't say why he was approached by police in the first place. The officer later claimed that the reason for the traffic stop was that Brock had an air freshener hanging from his rearview mirror, which could obstruct his vision. The Brock has now been charged with battery against a police officer and resisting arrest, to which he has pleaded not guilty. The arresting officer went to the hospital, claiming that Brock had bitten him. But the doctor examining him found no bite marks, instead found that he had injured his hand from punching Brock so hard in addition to the security camera footage showing Brock not biting the officer or even being able to bite him if he wanted to. Furthermore, after Brock was taken to jail, deputies began asking him invasive questions about his gender identity and genitalia and forced him to show his penis to a female officer, after which he was placed in a woman's holding cell. This is just part of a repeated pattern of police brutality against trans people, such as Maddie Hoffman, a trans woman who was killed by police last year or Aaron Lynch, a trans man who was killed by police last year and many more. This is also a part of a repeated pattern of transphobia among jails and prisons where trans people are frequently sexually harassed and assaulted and placed in the wrong cells for their gender. Do we want to discuss this? So what are y'all's thoughts on this story? I have a few. Go ahead, Sheila.
2: Well, during during the era that I grew up in, um, it was not uncommon that trans people could either be thrown in, of course, the wrong um, type of jail and or assaulted while in jail and were assaulted on the way to jail. And so <clears throat> the basic strategy was to be very respectful because it was, it was a question of, of the danger coefficient excuse me and so the thing that seems strange here is that usually in cases of excess brutality like this the officer is put on hold is am i to understand that that uh, the officer is is not on administrative leave
0: he is not um there is an investigation but so far the officer has not been placed under any administrative leave and has not faced um any
2: repercussions well there's two things that's into my mind, what is the essential? Uh, it, it shows that as a community, we have to be able to respond when any num- member of our community does have an, uh, an instance like this, not only uh, as we're doing tonight by bringing it forth, but by being ready at, at hand to be witnesses and to be advocates so that when this happens, it doesn't go it doesn't go uh, unopposed. And the other thing is it's a lesson for everyone who has not been in that position yet to try to think out beforehand and have an an innate inbuilt strategy of how to deal with law enforcement when any encounter appears. Um, uh, I'm sure they'll investigate whether this was a valid stop or not. And uh, usually the best way to handle a thing like that probably would have been to to question the officer rather than to just make a statement. Uh, uh, I, I think it's, it's best to let, let law enforcement make their point <clears throat> because you, it's hard to tell sometimes whether you're in a custodial situation or not.
1: Um, I'm going to um, echo uh, what Sheila has had to say because I have a paralegal background and you know it it's not as much like what actually happens it's what you can document um you know going forward uh and that's that's the challenging thing and um so having said that and acknowledging um sheila's i'm thinking that in a scenario like this as much as i hate to say it I hate to say it uh given the circumstances that we're living in and and this is this is an event that happened on the west coast. this isn't happening in Mississippi or Alabama or Tennessee or something this is happening you know on the west coast um there's a historic uh, uh an historic um uh and carrying forward uh uh perspective in, by more conservative law enforcement folks that um they can get away with this stuff even on the west coast where we have techni- technically legal um pr- protections um but this whole idea of it's like i have a technically legal pr- you know protection does not deal with something that happens on the street it doesn't it It plays out months and months and months sometimes years later in litigation and we have to posture ourselves we have to
3: be educated
1: i you know i don't know i don't i don't know what else to say
3: i mean i think that so i mean there are there are a few things in the story um i mean if you think about it what really started all of this was a police officer behaving violently towards um towards a woman or towards someone who's perceived as a woman so it started there that's where it started and whoever the police officer was they felt you know comfortable enough with their authority that they could just you know beat on someone in public and uh they would be impervious to any kind of penalty for doing that which unfortunately tells me that the police haven't learned anything since 2020 which is kind of what i suspect i mean when i think about what's going on here in portland right now um you know the other day ted wheeler was at that conference to save downtown and said that we need 100 more police officers in portland and um you know, I'm I'm pretty suspect that getting more police in Portland is going to do anything except for make Portland less safe. And uh, I think probably this is another example down in LA of how the police don't really do anything very useful for our community except for intimidate, harass people, and um, you know sometimes occasionally murder people. Um, I mean, we don't need the police out on the street beating women and then following trans men around and beating trans men um you know if there's problems we need more programs like Portland Street response uh Portland Street response is a great program and we need people who are there to deal with public safety who are unarmed who haven't been trained in paramilitary techniques I mean what this what this officer did was he stalked this man and he stalked him because he was already in a state of hyper aggression, because that's what they—that's what the police do. I mean, the police are trained basically to be like these paramilitary forces within our civilian society. And when they react to people, they—they they often react in this way. I mean, there's no reason. Uh, according to the story, he beat um, Emmett. Uh, let's see, what was his name again? He beat uh, M- Emmett, Emmett Brock, Brock eight eight times. head he 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 beat his head eight times now this man was unarmed if you see a picture of him you can see that he's i'm not sure what words he's i would just say he's he's skinny and he's the 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 police officer looks like he probably weighs about twice as much as Emmett. Prague, and he comes up on him with no notice throws him to the ground head first and then beats him in his head eight times Now, there's nothing that justified any of that. The reason that the police officer did that is because he was trained to do that, because that's what we do with our police. We train police to abuse people and to beat them into submission and to kill them, which is oftentimes what the police do, just like they did to George Floyd. And the first thing I'm thinking is that the police haven't learned anything since 2020 which proves to me that the police aren't going to learn anything going forward Mm -hmm. so that's my Uh, first
1: time emma i i i need to jump in here and say the thing that frightens me is if this was a story coming from you know the center of uh the united states that you know I, i i don't know i guess i could like write it off as being like, duh. But the point is, is this is West Coast. This is West Coast, you know, if there if there is a sanctuary, if there is a place, you know, if there are states that um, we have some semblance of safety it's the West Coast, and it's like, if this stuff is happening on the West Coast, that's scary. That's way, 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 way
3: scary. Another thing that, um, okay. I don't know if you caught it in the story, Nicolette, but um, another consequence of what happened to Emmett Brock was that he lost his job. Um, yeah, was,
0: yeah, I that too.
3: Yeah, he was initially charged with three felony charges and I, I mean, it's, it's, it's just really strange that like a man driving down the street, I mean, this is the reality of what it's like. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what race Emmett Brock is, but this is the reality for people of color living anywhere on the, on, on the West Coast or anywhere in America. The reality is that you can be driving down the street doing nothing. You could get pulled over by the police, violently beaten, and then given three felony charges which I don't know if you know how long you go to jail for that kind of, but you could be looking at five to 20 years in prison. So it's like this whole string of assaults that like is actually meant to be carried out to inflict on this person's entire life, you know, um, and this, this, this is uh, something that can happen. I mean, this is the reality that people of color face every day here in America. Well,
2: some thoughts uh, here tonight. Um, the, The first thing is that whenever these terrible things happen, It always, when it's put in replay, there's always a question. It's like almost the Titanic hitting the iceberg. And you say, well, what if it had been a few other degrees off uh, off course? I mean, what are the chances that this particular incident with this particular officer would happen on this particular night? And the answer is it really doesn't matter. If the ship goes down, it doesn't matter. That's all irrelevant once the event actually occurs. The only agency that we have as transgender people is to prevent it from happening in the first place. And the way that we do that is that we don't have complete control of any situation in life, but what we can do is we know certain things are dangerous uh, areas. They are things that can easily spin out of control. And so one of the ways that we prevent that as a community is to be aware that we may be a targeted community. We won't always be, and we won't be a target of every single person on the police force, but we very well could be targets of the wrong person at the wrong time with the wrong set of communications. And although they try to define situations when officers can do this, how much force can be used, even that is usually something that has to be unpacked after the event, and how effective those limitations are at actually curtailing action is, is anybody's guess. So if we start with the assumption that violence can break out in different places, now supply that to three other anti-trans incidents that has happened recently. So this this particular instance is very similar to a case where a shop owner in defending her own property and her right to have a pride flag on her on her premises was confronted by a 27-year-old man who ends up shooting her and killing her over the incident when she protested and then he himself was killed by police later on Um, Now, was she correct in in doing this? Was this part of her right to express this? But what happens is that we keep running into situations where we as a community pay the price. And although they try to curtail police conduct by having existing standards that officers have to obey, trying trying to read that as a lay person on, on the street at street level is very hard to do, and so the 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 in order to save ourselves, the best life skill that we can develop as a community is always assume that it can go south on you, and then go the other direction, answer questions, be respectful, and bring that encounter to a termination as quickly and as easily as consensually as possible because it's a dangerous and unwieldy situation and if we adopt that perspective it doesn't mean that we might not grumble afterwards or or feel sorry that we didn't get our say or make our points but anytime we're the one that gets hurt something went wrong and whether it's my fault, their fault, anybody's fault, it doesn't make any difference. It's that if we're the one left bleeding or left injured, then there's a problem there. And the problem is that we are in an unfriendly environment, oftentimes, and we're dealing with the vagaries of human behavior. And a lot of it is very tribal, and a lot of it is based upon the nervousness of the situation. And uh, I think I think that it's important. For really everybody that belongs to a minority community to almost do a preemptive uh, thing and say, okay, if this occurs, this is my plan, this is how I behave, and save the dignity for later work on you can always bring you know go 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 later on to protest the way you were treated i've had occasion where i was pulled over for something i didn't think i should even have been pulled over for and i went to the department the next day i asked the officer his badge number before before it was all over and i went and i I made a complaint because i thought it was ridiculous and i felt i'd been targeted specifically for being trans and and, they, and I, it was actually a good encounter because I was heard, I was able to get all of my points out, and, uh, and I felt so much better about the whole thing. But, I, but to try to do it in you know, a hot situation, that's something that usually comes back to bite us in the end.
1: Yeah, I, I, I need to jump immediately on um, your comments and your perspectives um in support and and actually to elaborate um the point being regardless of what may be either on the books as law or perceived you know as uh uh presidential presidential law and everything what we're talking about is we continue to be living in, even on the West Coast, even on the West Coast, even here in Oregon, Washington, California, um, um, the things that we perceive, we've been told are protections, are only protections to the extent that we can enforce them in the court of law. And, you know, that starts to be like, you know, months or years, thousands of dollars of, you know, prosecuting things in, you know, with an attorney. Um, and so very few of us have those assets. We don't have the assets. And, and the thing is, is that the people that are trying to subjugate us know this they know this, they know it. And not only do they know it now with the the um, uh, in many states and in the nation with the results of the 2016 election uh, nationally that put Trump in place and I'm I am going to call out um, the folks of younger generations who chose not to vote there Um, we will now live with you know uh in 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 that earlier election we will now live with the um rulings of a national supreme court and we're beginning to see it time and time and time again uh you know that are not going to rule in the way that we would like them to rule. Um, uh, But the point being that you have to dial that all the way down from the Supreme Court, all the way down to how you, you know, present yourself uh, and, and perceive yourself and deal with things on the street, on the street, because if you think that the system is going to like cover your rear end, it's not, it's not. And and we are still, you know, most of us in positions where we
3: we're,
1: we can't, you know, litigate something that's going to go on for years, it's not going to happen. So, and, and, and the, our opposition, yes. our, suppressor, our suppressors know this.
0: I mean, I, I guess my only thought at this point is that we are dealing with systematic abuse uh, towards um, the public by police. They are abusing trans people, they're abusing LGBT people, they're abusing people of color. And the only way this is gonna stop is if we overhaul the entire system and just make a complete change you know this is why we say all cops are bastards because they're all contributing to this system of oppression in order to stop the cycle you know we need to get completely off of it Uh, but go ahead Sheila
2: well here's my here's my well thought out and somewhat aged perspective I I have kind of revamped through the years now. When I started out, my attitude was I was, I, I was on a crusade, essentially. And I would go to businesses and they would say, you have to leave. i said, well, what do you mean? You're refusing me service in a place of public accommodation? They'd say, yes, I'm telling you and And the problem was at that time that was completely legal. And I said, well, what you're doing is wrong. I'm harming them. I'm simply sitting at my table drinking my Coca-Cola and studying my books. How is that interfere with anybody? But they said, and one guy just put it that way. He says, I don't want to get in a debate with you. This is what I'm asking you to do is go, period. So that was the world I came up in. And in those days, I got very bitter and very angry. And I looked at all the people who I thought had hurt me badly and because I was trying to defend what I felt was such a trivial change I was the same person inside as I'd always been be stripped of all this in fact why were they even focusing attention on me and so the paradox is you don't realize privilege until suddenly you're in a position where you fall into a different class well unfortunately transgender people are a group of people that are easily targeted and we have all kinds of stickers attached to our backs that people have put there that we didn't have anything to do with. And so the fact is, once we know that, then we have to reevaluate our own expectations of what we're gonna meet out there. And that means we do a usual thing. You do a cost-benefit analysis to say, is this the right time and place for me to be? When we're in a public arena, our expectation should not be, I can get away with being whatever I want today. It should be just the opposite. I'm in the jungle, and at any given moment, I could have a big problem here. Wrong time, wrong person, wrong place. Know how to exit adequately. Make sure you're not followed as you go to your car all the little safety things that you do when you're in the jungle. And if you take that attitude, it isn't that you're giving up your rights, it's you're protecting yourself. And there's nothing wrong with us protecting ourselves. We have to be smarter than than the opposition. We have to be more cogent. And if we are going to protest As I say, try to get some measure of accountability, badge numbers isn't maybe a bad thought, although some people may resent doing it, but technically that's that's their identification. That's what gives them the authority to stop you in the first place. Look how much more effective that type of approach would be than to tell the officer, you don't know your job. How do we expect that's going to be heard or what's going to be the response? And who's going to be hurt if anybody's hurt? We have to build our own culture. We have to be our own self-affirmation. We have to write our own plays, write our own books. Um, I took great comfort from the uh, the wonderful series Pose because it showed what a trans community in action actually looks like. And I think that's what we have to remember. We have to think tribally. We have to think as though we are on uh, on enemy ground sometimes. Not always, we don't want to be paranoid, but sometimes
3: prudence is what saves us from bleeding that's the key thing so i I think that what this shows is that our struggles are all interconnected and that but our struggles are interconnected if a trans man regardless of what his race is can have this happen to him just for driving down the street then it can happen to any one of us and what this what this teaches me is that we're not going to be safe until we get the cops off the street i mean the cops are one of the biggest threats to public safety and what we need to do is we need to just revamp the entire system we need to have public safety officers who are unarmed who are there to keep the peace who know how to get the right person out for the right situation when there's a mental health crisis We need police that have been completely um, and thoroughly vetted for people who are bullies, who are abusers. We need police who aren't trained in paramilitary techniques. And we also have to work from the bottom up on every other issue, like we have to get rid of guns. We live in a society that's flooded with more guns than people. We need to reform the courts the courts have become so gerrymandered that they're just completely politicized and it's obvious to every american that what's going on in the courts right now is um is 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 essentially political and it's not really based on law or justice there's a couple of other sides to this story that i think are important to talk about one of the issues that this brings up is the um incarceration of trans men and what it's like for trans men who have to live behind bars it's very common especially in southern states for trans men who have been out as masculine their entire adult lives they might have been out and on testosterone for 20 years and yet they could still find themselves in a women's prison uh it's very common to take trans men and to put them into isolation where they have little to no contact, which is the complete denial of their human rights. And it's also very common for trans men to experience humiliation, intimidation, and uh, a real fear for their own personal safety when they're incarcerated. And the issue of the incarceration and detention of trans men is an issue that we don't talk enough in the trans community. We don't talk about that enough, the very real, challenges that these people face living under the american prison system which is already one of the worst prison systems in the world
0: Yeah, because like I was, he was, I mean, not that this would have been okay if he was pre-op or not on testosterone, but he was on testosterone. He was post-op. You know, he, he had a penis and he was forced to show that penis to a female officer. I mean, that's, that's just straight up sexual assault. And even after that, they still put him in a women's holding cell. Like, why would you do that? I mean, you sh- again, you shouldn't do that even if he was pre-op, but he has a penis and you're putting him in in the women's cell how does that make any sense and it's it's discrimination it's transphobia and making him show his genitals is sexual assault
2: mm-hmm. here here's here's something that i once again i keep in mind all the time is that paradigms determine everything how you approach everyday reality and i i As I say, I started out as a major rebel. I liked rebelling just for the sake of rebelling because I hated the concept that people could hold me to various definitions. And that was fine as long as I'm playing philosophy. But once again, you take that out on the street and a whole different world has shape in front of you. It has its own rules. It has its own momentum. Anytime that we are assaulted or victimized or beat up we naturally feel anger and and outrage and our personal dignity is affronted and we are wounded inside and most of us have fairly thin skin because we've experienced abuse in other situations the temptation therefore is to try to immediately get involved regardless of the situation and try to improve it on the spot I suggest that that is unlikely to be a situation that will give us the outcome that we desire. We would do far better to think strategically before we enter the world and ask ourselves what the limits of our situation is and just exactly what we can do if things go south on us. And I think that that's the best way that we can protect ourselves. And I understand the desire for a better world, a better police force, and a a more empathetic world. But since we don't have it, we have to play the game the way the the chips have to fall. And the faster we learn, it's, it's just like any time in, in the jungle. The, who, who is, whole herds of animals learn to survive by behaving as a herd. Uh, we do best when we have our friends around us when we go out. Do do We should know where we're going, why, and how late. We should, we should bear in mind the types of people that are out after 12 at night uh, after 1 in the morning. Uh, We have to be aware of where did we park our car. Uh, At any time, these are the things that we have to learn. And if we do that and work as a community, we can take care of ourselves and each other, and that's our best bet in my particular mindset to it. I know how angry we can get, and I know how frustrating it is, and how outrageous, and how many tears are behind all of this, but experience has taught me this is to say so many situations should simply be avoided in the first place then there's no need to unpack it after the fact.
3: I mean I think that in the case of this story though this the story that we're talking about with Emmett Brock is I, I, I think that I, I mean the transphobia that happened probably happened after the officer's interaction with this individual. I mean this, this is really this this particular story really highlights why we need to um, abolish the police and why we need to transform how we do public safety in this culture i mean here in portland the mayor ted wheeler recently said that we need a hundred more police officers in portland and he wants the state troopers to come up to portland and to fill in because there's so few police, and that's because you know, the police don't want to deal with the reality of what people are asking now of the police. I mean, we're asking the police not to um, do the things that they used to do. We're saying that mm-hmm. we want a different definition of public safety. And this is actually, what's happening right now in Portland is really interesting because Portland is one of those cities where we stood up to what we saw, um, what, we, what we saw, and what we know from historical and systemic abuse on the part of the police towards citizens. And we decided that we want a different definition of public safety. And we're in the middle of reforming our city government so that uh, how we do representative government in Portland is going to be radically reframed and as a result of that that's going to affect who the mayor is that's going to affect the roles that city councilors have and ultimately it's going to affect how we choose to do public safety in our communities and in the long run it might also have a really positive effect on policing too we also have a da mike schmidt who's taken a very different kind of approach to dealing with um to dealing with public safety it's not the same approach that Portland used to have, and its district attorney. I mean, these are all things that, and in this story that we just talked about with Emmett Brock, the the part that was the transphobia was what Emmett Brock experienced after he first, loved, after the police officer first made physical contact with him, and. But up until that point, I don't think that we can really read this as specifically a case of transphobia. Now I wasn't there, I don't know what happened, but I mean when I look at Emmett Brock, he clearly passes. I mean, I don't know of any police officer that's gonna look at Emmett Brock like driving by in a car and say, Oh, there's a trans man. I mean, it may be that I'm not seeing something, but The point of this story it's it's two points one is that the police are still abusing us they're still beating us up and we're not safe and the second point is that even trans men are subject to you know the same kind of intense transphobia and discrimination especially if they end up um, you know in the custody of law enforcement and so you know for me the lesson is we need to change both of those we need to change law enforcement so that it's completely different and we also need to make public space safe for everyone so that's what that's my takeaway Mm -hmm. thank you
2: so here's my response if i may on The fact of the LGBT movement that I, in my lifetime, I've ever seen was ACT UP under Larry Kramer, where the community was simply desiring to get access to anti-AIDS drugs and save lives and simply to get it within public discourse that AIDS even existed. That's how bad it was. And it took massive demonstrations, and it took a long time to get that visibility out there and that resistance out there took incredible imagination to design the protests so that they had the most coverage possible and were most evidence to say, here's our problem and make it visible. So it's wonderful for us to have desires to uh, improve police forces and change the nature of things. Um, but during COVID, I have to say I've looked around, and I'm very nervous, as of personally, about the result of next year's election. And if it goes in a Republican direction, I very much worry about the following four years. So I've been kind of saying, hey, these are the good old days. Uh, if if we get, if, the, if the country goes the wrong direction in 2025. Uh, A significant part of my remaining years will be tied up in watching this country turn into a semi-fascist state. And i don't want to live in that state, uh, but I know a lot i don't I don't feel like I should be driven out of my country uh or i I feel like I'm probably safer here than I would ever be in in most of the United States and America. Just look at the bills that were passed against us, targeting us deliberately and trying to uh not only support the people that assault us but but to give it a give it a, a veneer of acceptability. So when you look at life that way, you, you say, okay, then what, what can we do? And the thing is always pick your arena. Make sure that you bring maximum numbers of people involved. Make sure that you record absolutely everything so that you can always prove their point of view. That's why cell phones are so great. You can get videos on everything. If somebody starts beating you up, the best thing you can do is have five friends there that are, are following every single move the officer makes. So this is what I mean about thinking smart and being effective. And that's what we need to do.
3: Thank you. Um, I'd like to switch gears for just a minute because we've only got about maybe eight minutes left in the show. Um, I just want to bring up uh, another news story that you referenced uh, briefly, Sheila, and it's uh, the story of Laura Ann Carlton. Last Friday, uh, Laura Ann Carlton was shot and killed um, in a dispute over a pride flag that she had uh, in her store. Uh, Laura Laura Ann Carlton is uh, well known within the fashion and design community. Uh, She came from uh, fashion and design royalty, basically. Uh, Her family was active going back decades in uh, the design industry. And uh, Laura Carlton had a shop in uh, a place called uh, Lake Arrowhead, uh, which is in California, it's near San Bernardino. Uh, her store is called the Magpie Clothing Store uh, it was actually in Cedar Glen, California and uh, apparently this wasn't, uh, so she uh, she herself, I don't know if she was queer or not, I, I don't think she was queer, but she was definitely an ally and she had been hanging the pride flag um, in her store for a number of years and this wasn't the first time that she had an incident with that flag it actually had been torn down on several occasions and uh, so obviously there was someone in the community, or more than one person, who had hostility. Um, she was a mother um, and wife in a family of nine people. She came from a, Flint, uh, a blended family, and she was, a proud, uh, she was a proud advocate for the LGBTQ community. She was reported to help and advocate for everyone in her community um and i just i think that this is an example of what's happening right now the the kind of rhetoric that we're seeing the kind of rhetoric that we're hearing and the kind of actions that we're seeing happening in the national press are turning people such as laura and carlton into victims and um it just shows us i think that even if you're just an ally of the lgbtq community you're under the same kind of threat that we all are. And that, um, you know, this person who was a joyful person, who was somebody who was really giving and sharing within her community, uh, she's gonna be very deeply missed. I mean, the, the story was just all over the national press. And, you know, I just wanted to take a minute to remember this person. I mean, there's a lot of other people that we need to remember too who are murdered and who uh you know are harmed um but it's also important to remember when our allies are murdered because they're dying for the same reason that they're killing us so i just wanted to take a minute just to remember laura and carlton uh the person who did it was uh was also killed he was killed by the police uh pretty shortly after this incident so um you know the it's just it was it was a sad week last week it really was and uh, this was just kind of was at the top of the news you know i mean this person's really a hero in my book so i just wanted to take a minute to remember her <laughs> well, we've got about five minutes left. Is there anything that uh, we didn't get to? Mm-hmm. In this-
2: well, I'd like to respond to that case that you mentioned just now, you know, and thanks for all the fill-in. you know. Here, here's my thoughts. If, if we, every year in November, we celebrate and remember people who simply tried to live their lives and as a result, we're martyred in the cause. Now, if that witness was effective, we would already not only have the rights that we need to survive, but we wouldn't be targeted and maligned by all the various things that are laid at our doorstep that have nothing to do with what we're trying to do in our lives. So, what does that tell us? That tells us that chalking up a few more martyrs isn't gonna solve our problems. What's going to solve our problems is to ask ourselves in any given transaction, is it worth my life? Is it worth sacrificing my life on this one spot in this one situation? And will it even be noticed? And if it is noticed, exactly how much effect will it have? So my theory is martyrdom is maybe a last ants thing that some of us may have to do in life, but it shouldn't be our game plan. What we should try to do instead is always assess these situations carefully ahead of time and ask ourselves, how can we avoid being martyrs? How can we avoid being victims? And, And then if we do seek retribution, we do it after the fact where we can take it and do it in a calmly considered way with whatever resources we have, communally or individually, and we put those things together. And that should be the lesson that we draw from these things. It doesn't mean we set our anger aside or our sorrow aside or anything. It just means we ask ourselves, what is the best leverage point that we can apply? And that's how we end up winners and not victims.
0: Well, but I also think that, you know, I mean, this woman was killed for displaying a pride flag, even though she wasn't queer herself. She was an ally. And that's why, you know, you could argue, well, maybe she brought that on herself by displaying a pride flag. But we need people to display pride flags. We need people to be allies because that's how we... Will eventually overcome our oppression. Is we there is strength in numbers. We need to fight back against our oppressors. We need to show that we are not afraid of them. I mean, me personally, if somebody wanted to kill me because I was displaying a pride flag, I would say, "Bring it
2: on." I don't. I don't think any of us should ever feel that we have to pay the price. See, that's what I'm trying to do is get our whole mindset twisted around till we say, bring it to the enemy. Don't take it in ourselves. We Some part of us has been trained to be victimized is that's what scares me is that we've accepted it so long that we think, you know what, I'm just going to stand my ground in, in hell or high water. But, but, there is a better way to do this thing and it and it doesn't mean that we're cowardly and it doesn't mean that we haven't it just means that we're smart enough to know okay if the enemy's coming at my front i move off to the flank and i get him from the
3: side so um what i'd like to do is with the last five minutes or so last five to eight minutes i'd just like to share a little bit of good news because a lot of our stories today have been bad news um and this is a story that it's a little bit old now but it's not too old and since we're only on once every two weeks uh this happened between uh this show and our last show um and the story is um in in august oregon governor tina Kotek celebrates law protecting gender-affirming care and abortion uh governor Cotex signed house bill 2002 um which took effect july 13th and uh there was just kind of a celebration of that it's a law which um, protects gender affirming care <clears throat> and also protected abortion um and in the statesman journal uh, the governor is quoted as saying that neighboring states are banning and criminalizing Essential health care and targeting access to life saving health care for transgender and non binary individuals. And Governor T- Kotek said, here in Oregon, we are going to take a stand. So uh, the law allows minors under the age of 15 to seek abortion and reproductive care without parental consent and requires insurance coverage for medically necessary gender-affirming care so again um you know we, we've all heard about h bill 2002 of course we heard about this because this was the bill that stalled any legislative action in the senate senate for six weeks while the republicans were up to their old games just like they did last year during the legislative session where basically they tried to take down the entire system of representative government in oregon because they didn't like the fact that gender-affirming care was something that oregonians considered to be essential health care and uh the democrats stood up to them the governor stood up to them and eventually they caved because they were wrong and we got our legislation passed and i really think it's something to celebrate i mean it was such a positive win in so many ways it was positive for democracy in oregon it was positive for the trans community it was positive for the um women's community for the community of people who receive reproductive health care including both uh, cisgender women and people who uh, have uteruses and it's just a, a great, you know, a really great thing to kind of just mention at the end of the show.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that, Emma. Are we ready to close out?
3: Yeah.
2: Oh, okay. All right. Well, this was just an, I, it's, it's a, maybe a, a small example of what I'm talking about, of, of how do you win against a bad situation? When I was struggling for civil rights in Tacoma, Uh, what happened was we had a protest down in Olympia. And so a pastor with a group of his followers, most of them fairly young people around him, came up and and said, well, you are a freak of nature. And now normally this this is about as, as frontal an attack as you can get. And my response was, I said, all right, let's take that as a working hypothesis. I'm a freak of nature. Uh, in the voluntary component on my part that I'm uh, that I'm somebody that has chosen this' I'm, I've been victimized by nature itself but I said let's look at your position your position is that you're supposed to love everybody so does does my being a freak of nature mean that I'm immune that somehow you're relieved of your duty to love me the way your your religion is uh, imposes upon you and what happened was I looked at his followers and not only did he not have an answer but all of the followers suddenly saw his hatefulness and and an entirely different light than if I had retaliated against him and that's my little story
0: all right well thank you everyone for joining us tonight this was a great show and I'm glad we got to discuss so much so we will see you next time on Trans Positive have a good night everyone
2: Transgender people don't live here. I've never met
0: anyone who's transgender.
3: I swear I don't know someone who's transgender. Transgender and non-binary people like me hear this all the time. But according to the HRC Foundation, there are more than two million transgender people in the United States.
2: We live in every community across this country.
3: You might be surprised to hear that there are more transgender and non-binary people in the United States than there are.
2: Starbucks, McDonald's, and Walmart locations combined. In fact, if you put us all together,
0: there'd be more non-binary and transgender folks than the populations of D.C.
2: Or Nebraska.
0: Or Maine or Idaho
2: or West Virginia.
0: As a matter of fact, fifteen states have a lower population than the amount of trans folks in the US. So here are a few things to keep in mind.
2: You don't always know when a person is trans. But we're your neighbors, your co-workers, your students,
3: your customers,
2: and even your friends and family. We exist in every culture, todas las culturas throughout human history.
3: And while we're more visible than ever before,
2: sometimes You just don't see us. So when
1: you hear about politicians pushing forward discriminatory bills,
2: know this, these bills address problems that aren't even real. Problems that don't actually exist. But we do. We do. We do. We do. We do.
1: We do. We do.
3: We do. do.
2: And we need your support.
0: I'm baby, I want it for
2: myself. If he don't be mine, he won't have the body else. He has left me, I'll do the best I can. I'm a do like keep, yet a friend in any place I am.
3: Hi, this is Emma. Um, I am a co-host of Transpositive, and I'm also the current president of the board of directors here at Kebu. At KBU, we prove every day that people-powered radio has the ability to bring us together across distances and give us hope when we feel despair. Your friends at Kebu, want to remind you that generosity has the same power. Join thousands of KBU supporters from all around the world, and let's rally together to build Stronger communities. If you can, just go to kboo.fm/slash give or text kboo to this number 44321. And thanks so much for your support of KBOO Community Radio. Portland on
2: 90.7 FM, K2H2BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM.
0: KBO turns 55 this year. We're planning a birthday block party to celebrate 55 years of broadcasting community radio. On Saturday, September 23rd, from noon until 10 p.m., KABU will transform a block near its studios into a festival area. Activities will include live music, station tours, food, beverages, vendors, and fun. This event is family-friendly and free to the public. From 1 until 2 p.m., KABU will hold its annual meeting and elections for the board of directors. All are welcome to participate as KABU discusses the accomplishments of 2023 and looks ahead to 2024. Join Kebu and celebrate